I am Seth. I'm one of the teaching pastors here on staff, and today I get to teach uh, this text on gender, right? So gender is a complicated word. Same, same as the word genesis, gender, uh, beginning, begets. It's like the, the origin of things, that which comes from. So we're going to talk about uh, gender today. Uh, next week, we're going to talk about sex and sex ethics. So today's more about how we understand ourselves as males and females, boys and girls, masculine and feminine. Next week, we'll talk about what we should do and not do with those realities, all right? So that's kind of where we're headed. Uh, gender's a complicated thing, right? So, it, you know, last week I taught on rest, and like everybody in the whole world agreed with my sermon. You know, rest is good, right? And so, uh, whereas today I'm talking about gender, and everybody's already like halfway triggered, you know? And I just want everyone to know, I know that. And some of it's just because things are tense out there, and some of it is because of our own sense of wounds, like having felt like stereotypes pressed on us, or um, being mad about uh, f- space being invaded, or like the kind of having to show your pronouns at work. And so there's, there's reasons why people are elevated. I don't want to minimize those, but it's even in a popular culture, there's a huge gap between uh, way non-Christians think about this, right? Like you have a, this increase of the right-wing red pill manosphere types who are like, we need to get back to the time when men were kings. And you have the kind of the leftist progressives who are like, nothing's real. You can't even, like there's no up and down. Everything's just chaos. And so there's, there's division outside of here, much less possibly inside of here. And even just recently, I was watching this, this movie and things that you didn't even think were, you know, there's, there's a, a male who's wearing a sleeveless dress with long hair and braids and makeup. And here's a picture of him, just so you know what he looked like. Oh, there he goes. <laughs> things are getting crazy out there, all right, so... But we, we know that some of this gender stuff is social and local, right? Kilt versus dress versus pants, uh, war paint versus makeup. Like we know that some of this is uh, uh, just social stuff, but we also know that some of it is just not, and we need to be able to draw those lines. And so what we really want is for our faith to be informed and shaped by the scriptures and the route that the scriptures give to us. And so uh, I know that some of you kind of came in pretty uh, fussy about this and I just want to know, like, uh, I want us to pray that we'll have quiet hearts and open minds that we can be corrected by the Bible, all right? And so I have three points today and here's what they're gonna be. Uh, number one, uh, there are two genders. Number two, don't overemphasize their difference. Number three, don't overemphasize their sameness. All right, let me pray, and then we'll dive in, okay? Lord Jesus, help us uh, see that it's good to be men, it's good to be women, it's good to be boys, good to be girls, and that you've created uh, this difference with purpose, and we should celebrate it, not be ashamed of it. God, I ask that as uh, I speak, you'd give me wisdom, accuracy, precision. I know that uh, this is a pained subject for a lot of reasons, and God, I pray that we can receive your word as good news, not as bad news. In your name we pray, amen. All right, so starting in the text, Genesis 2, verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So backing up, here's kind of how this is working so far, is Genesis 1 is this kind of 10,000 foot overview of how God creates the world. First day, second day, third day, it was good, it was good, it was good. Then God creates male and female, and it is 
Very good. And so if you're first time reading Genesis 1 and 2, you get to Genesis 2 and you're confused because in the last chapter, God made male and female and they should subdue and have dominion and be fruitful and multiply. And then you get to Genesis 2 and only the man is created and there's like a problem. And so you have to ask what's going on here. So the way this works in, in Hebrew writing is you tell the big picture overview, then you set down the story and you kind of look at the side of it and you zoom in on one aspect of the story. So Genesis 2 is zooming in on the creation of humanity, retelling that story with more specificity and purpose and example. And so the very first thing we get is in this creation account that it was good, it was good, it was good, it was good. God makes humanity, it was very good. But then Genesis 2, you get the very first not good in the history of the entire cosmos. And it is this, it is not good that the man should be alone. Now the question is why? Why is it not good? Right? Is it not good that the earth only has one moon? No. You know, isn't that moon up there being lonely? Why is it, where's the other, you know, that's, so why is it not good? Well, most basically that God had given a task to humanity that they would be fruitful and multiply. And then you have a man by himself, and by himself, man cannot fruitful and multiply. Men are not seahorses, right, that can do this kind of androgynous split thing. Like you, if you are gonna try to pull off the task that God gave to humanity, it is not good that man, man cannot do it by himself. That God, being three in one, as Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, creates male and female, that they would be an image of him, that he is three in one, and that male and female would be two in one. I will make him a helper fit for him. Helper fit, so that word helper is most of the time applied to God in the Old Testament. Israel's in danger, God is their helper. The word is ezer. It's like support warrior type language that you can't do what you're going to do and so God comes as Israel's helper and they win the victory. The next time we see the word helper is in the next chapter that after Adam and Eve have a child, Eve says, with God's help I made a man. And so right away that word helper is that Eve is being helped by God, God is helping Israel. And so rather than seeing helper as like subordinate, we should see helper as come alongside to equip. That you couldn't do this, but now I have this other component and now I can do this. That Israel would go to war and lose, but God helps, they win. Adam tries to fruitful and multiply by himself. He can't. He needs Eve. He can. So helper fit or corresponding. That this is like if you picture that there's light and dark and plants and animals, heaven and earth, male and what's the fit corresponding other. That God is doing this kind of dramatic tension moment where he like pauses after creating the man and then like lets him experience the absence of having someone who corresponds to him across from him fitting for him. We reenact this in our marriage ceremonies, right? The man's up there, the, the woman comes, like he's alone, she, she comes, right? She, she comes up next to him. Help, help her, fit for, or corresponding to him. So what God does is he kind of creates this parade moment. Where he's like, we're gonna bring by all the other things I've created and you're gonna see if any of these things correspond to you or, or fit you or not. And so verse 19 says, now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed all these beasts of the field and birds and heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever men called them, that was the name. They, 
so God gives us authority to Adam to name things. Uh, Verse 20, the man gave names to all the livestock and the birds of the heavens and every fish of the field. But for Adam, there's not found a helper fit for him. So Adam's on this journey trying to find a helper fit. He's like, nope. Like, you know, I went to the zoo yesterday with the kids and it's like, you see the baboon? Nope. See the rhinoceros? Nope. See, see the bird? Nope. And so he's naming these things, missing like, none, I'm not going with any, these, none of these ones are going to work, right? And so he's got this problem and here's what happens. It says, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and while he slept, he took one of his ribs. I think that's actually a pretty poor translation. It's probably like he just took his side, like he took one of his sides. It's more like Adam being split in two than it is like Adam losing a rib, that he's torn in two and then God fixes this one and then fixes this one. This one's male. This one's female. That God is split in two. Adam is split. And now there's male and there's female. And this is why they're two, but when they come together, they make one. That there's one and there's two. And they come together as one and then they're fruitful and multiply. And so God tears them apart and closes up this place and heals it with flesh. And then he makes woman out of this side. In verse 23, and the man said, this at last... Like this is like, this is like relief language. This lineup of animals is killing me. Woman, at last. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. That the first thing you see from this is the same. She's like me. Not like all these other things that are not like me. The same as me. Finally, another human. And he sees that her difference She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man, that they are separate and one. And so this binary biological difference is, this is a story about these people's bodies. That our bodies tell us the truth about who we are. And this is the, the tense moment in our culture that we as parents and as Christians and as grandparents and as siblings, we want to be very clear in how we talk about this, that our bodies tell us the truth about who we are. Your body feels anxious, you are anxious. Your body's 13 years old, you are 13 years old. Your body has boy parts, you are a boy. Your body tells the truth about who you are. And so we have a long history in our culture of like why we think our bodies lie to us. And that's like part of my dissertation. If you ever want to talk about that, I could send you that. Um, But why we trust our minds and not our bodies is is a whole problem. But here's a line for us. So so here's here's my first point is there are two genders. Uh, They're male and female. They're rooted in our bodies. And if you want to know your gender, you look in your pants, not in your heart. I'm not meaning that to be only funny, but there's like this idea of like, am I a boy or a girl? It's like, well, do I like the princess aisle or do I like the sports ball aisle? You know, and it's like, you have to like psychologize it or look in your heart. And it's like, no, this is way more stinking simple than everyone's making this out to be. This is non-complex. If you want to know your gender, you look in your pants, not in your heart. And so when you're when your daughter or your son goes like, but dad, I like princesses, maybe I'm a girl. You're like, hey, that's okay. What makes you a girl is your body, not your mind. When your son is like, but I really like baking. Maybe I'm a girl. Like, no. Nowhere in the biology textbooks does it say if you like baking, you're a woman. It, if you're, you're 
Your body tells you the truth about you. And so I think it's very manipulative, flirting with abusive, to gaslight people, telling them your body doesn't tell you the truth about you. It's destructive. It hurts people. And so one of the ways we can talk about this as parents, grandparents, siblings, is like our bodies tell us the truth about us. And in about point... In about 0.0017% of folks who have like true intersex conditions, that's super hard. And still, the burden should be, I want to tell the truth with my body and with how I present my body. There's lots of Bible verses. Don't bear false witness. Don't lie. Tell the truth, right? So that's kind of square one here. There are two genders. Your body tells the truth about your gender, right? Uh, Gender dysphoria is really painful, Feeling like your body doesn't match your mind. Uh, but the mind trumps the body in human well-being. And so there you go. All right. Uh, danger we have here is overemphasizing the difference. This is my second point. We don't want to overemphasize the difference. One, because the first thing that's emphasized in the Bible story is same. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. So if anything, the ark that we should feel when we're talking about boys and girls is no, girls are not from Mars and boys are from Venus. Actually, boys and girls are mostly the same. We're humans, made in the image of God. What makes us have dignity and value is the fact that we are together made in the image of God. And so overemphasizing the difference creates a lot of problems. Um, The first thing it does is it creates this kind of misogyny, patriarchy deal. Men are like this, women are like this. And most human societies in world history have had that basic structure. Going back to Plato, uh, in the Western culture, Plato thought that men, women were deficient and lacked IQ and they were just like insufficient to be voting citizens, right? That's Plato in the West. In the East, you have these creation stories of uh, these God's fighting it out and the man conquering the woman. The woman becomes the land. The man's the sky. And so the males rule. And because women are best, because women are worse at war, they're therefore worse at everything. That's like Eastern culture, right? And so that overemphasis difference of male superiority is totally incompatible with Genesis 1 and 2, which says that men and women, they shall have dominion together. They are man in the image of God. Conversely, you have kind of like the new movement thing, like future is female, kind of like Barbies are taking over stuff, that if women were in charge, there just wouldn't be problems. And so you kind of get this like misandry matriarchy thing that like the solution to male sin is actually uh, throw out women, throw out men, elevate women. And you kind of get like, I think the real problem here has been the men. And so going, also not true. The matriarchal cultures are way less common, but guess what? Fully human centers and generally terrible, just like all the other human cultures. Don't emphasize the difference. The other thing too is if you overemphasize the difference is this third one is you get these like rigid stereotypes rather than having archetypes. Right, like, uh, and this actually harms our young people who are trying to grow up believing that their body tells the truth about you, but then you say things like, actually, like if you say girls wear dresses and that's what makes them a girl, then you have a daughter who like doesn't like dresses. You're creating gender dysphoria. I don't like dresses. Maybe that means I'm a boy. And it's like we, we need to like hold very loosely to these stereotypes and recognize that the Bible's very open with how people who are truly men or truly women can have these different aspects of who they are without it violating their, their real gender or their real, their real sex, 
all right? So I'll give you some examples of this. Like uh, Paul in 1 Thessalonians, when he's talking about what he's like as a shepherd, he says this, we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. This is Paul not saying, and maybe I'm trans. This is Paul saying, I'm secure in my maleness, but this caring, maternal, gentle thing applies to me sometimes. That he can look at the church and go, he can be gentle, he can hold close, he can support. So he's not saying feminine and masculine don't exist. He's saying they do exist. And when I'm secure in my masculinity, I can be maternal sometimes and it's fine. He's not being weird about this. And so sometimes in reaction to like leftist kind of anarchy stuff, we kind of flinch back to these rigid gender stereotypes and it's like, men are too soft. We need to be less caring and we need to, men should go to war, women should do the, and it's just, that's just different than the Bible's energy here on this. Jesus himself does the same type of thing in Luke 13. When Jesus says this, he's lamenting that Israel won't come to him. They won't repent. They won't come under his care. And he says, how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen, as a mother hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you're not willing. He's at this like maternal ache. I wish you just let me care for you. Like this kind of maternal instinct of mother hen. I want to be a mother hen, but you won't repent and come underneath my care. So what he's, again, they're not erasing masculine and feminine, but these Paul and Jesus are, are okay with saying, there's this aspect of femininity that I can act out in my care, gentleness, support, gathering thing. And so conversely, right, like men have 20 times more testosterone than women on average. That's why there's no women playing in the Super Bowl today, right? At least that we know of, right? So, but at the same time, like that creates strength and resilience and presence and the lack of vulnerability Again, I'm talking about trends here, thinking about like a bell curve. Uh, but the woman who's like idealized as the excellent wife in Proverbs 31, she's doing this stuff that many of us might consider being traditionally masculine. She's an excellent wife who can find. She's far more precious than jewels. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. So she's doing entrepreneurship. She's providing for her family. She's doing business. Deal. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. Right, traditionally masculine, but at the same time, she's the excellent wife. So we need to be careful here when we overemphasize the difference while at the same time not eliminating the fact that there is difference. Okay? Uh, track with me so far? Okay. So the third danger here is overemphasizing the sameness, right? So if most of cultures in most of world history overemphasized difference. Our current culture moment is overemphasizing sameness. So here's the danger is you get this idea of interchangeability rather than complementarity, right? Uh, this men and women are not different in any way. There's no difference in perspective. There's no difference in instinct. There's no difference in uh, biology, which manifests as psychology and plays out sociologically. There's no difference. And so what happens is you kind of get this like bind in workplaces where you go like, men and women are the same, but like a board of directors that's all men is a problem. And I go, well, if they're all the exact same, then why is a board of directors that's all men a problem? Because then you just have interchangeability, right? If men and women are the same, then 
two dads and two moms is not a problem. If men and women are the same, then, you know, there's all these different roles that we're going like, but they're not the same and we need to stop lying about them being the same. And we need that rather than believing in interchangeability, we should have complementary, that men and women are similar but are fundamentally different and their different perspectives and insights are valuable and are needed in raising children, leading churches, supporting the world. If you actually go the full men and women are the exact same thing, you lose any distinctive value or protection or care that is owed to one group over another. And then you end up having this kind of gender anarchy situation where people have no idea what maleness is or femaleness is, no idea about how I want to grow up to be a masculine man or grow up to be a feminine woman. We have, there's just this anarchy situation. And uh, in G.K. Chesterton's book, he gives this illustration about trying to balance a pin on its head. And what he says is like, it's actually incredibly difficult. And if you want to understand why there's so many false religions or even why there's so much confusion about genders, he says this, that there are infinity angles at which one can fall, but only one at which one stands. So that's why when you eliminate there are two genders, male and female, your body tells you the truth, that you get this chaos of falling in every thousand different directions. We'll keep inventing new genders, we'll keep inventing new problematizations, we'll keep confusing because once you like lose the simplicity of the straight up and down, there's a thousand angles at which you fall. And so what I want to try to do here now, and so this is a, I'm working out a template here. So give me some grace as I try to talk about this. I'm trying to go, okay, so like what if what makes males and females different is their capacity to produce certain gametes, that's biology, right? Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's their bodies, it's XXXY stuff. Um, if that's male and female, then what is masculinity and femininity if that is male and female, right? If masculine is acting out. So uh, how do we do this? And so what I'm gonna try to do here is articulate what I'm gonna call the core masculine traits and the core feminine traits, trusting that if I get canceled, you also love me. Okay, so that's how we're gonna do this. All right, so the core masculine trait, I'm gonna argue uh, that men should aspire to is chivalry. It's an old word, which is why I like it, so I can tell you what it means. So it's, uh, um, Chivalry, here's my definition of chivalry. It's strength that honors, right? If in the womb, men get this testosterone wash that leads to the production of male parts, and then those male parts lead to the production of testosterone, men on average have 20 times more testosterone than women. Men, um, by nature and in general, again, like I think about, if you think about a bell curve here, that masculine and feminine are kind of like two overlapping bell curves. Like if I said, men are in general taller than women, that's inarguable, but it's certainly true that some women are taller than some men. So think about like height, like we're talking about trends, generalities, not universals. We're in the language of Proverbs here. Things are generally true, not universally true. And so again, like my wife, I bet can do more pull-ups than all of you guys. And that's not like a weird masculine thing. Anyway, so. Um, Chivalry, strength, and honors. Comes in 1 Peter 3, 7, where um, Peter says this. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Uh, the weaker vessel, I think, is literally describing bodies. That in general, women have weaker bodies than men in general. Again, that's why there's no women playing in the Super Bowl today. Um, but what does that mean? Right, because if you look at world history, it's largely a history of like men asserting dominance, oppression, and abuse. Not even world history, like recent history. 
like in our church, I'm stronger, serve me. This is the opposite of the so what given by Peter here. That because men are the stronger vessel, they have this additional responsibility to show honor. So if abuse is showing dishonor, using strength to oppress, that's improper use of strength, right? Whereas like, there's this other side of it, which is the non-use of strength, which is this, I'm not gonna do anything. That's abdication or abandonment. And so because there's been so much male abuse, a lot of men think the real answer to that problem is just to do nothing, rather than doing the right thing, which is using strength to honor, chivalry, holding up, elevating. Again, this is not to say that women can't abuse or that women can't abdicate, but even then, the stereotypical male sins of abuse and absenteeism are rooted in the core masculine trait that is they ought to be pursuing strength that honors, that elevates, that lifts up. I was talking to a couple guys the other day and they're kind of lamenting feminism. You know, back in the good old days, men would get home from work and their wife would have a sandwich ready because men are kings. And I'm like, like they were talking to each other, not talking to me, and I'm praying through, do I say something, not say something? So I said something. And I was, <laughs> and uh, I'm like, yeah, sure, men are kings, but like, who defines what a good king is? What's a good king? Because there's this guy named King Jesus who is the omnipotent one who took on flesh and washed feet. You know, or this guy named King Jesus who is the, the groom of all grooms who died for his wife that she might flourish, Ephesians 5 talks about. That's chivalry, right? It's what God does for us as church. Uh, now we can talk about the core feminine trait, all right? So bear with me here. As I said, I'm working this out. I'm talking it out. Bounced off a couple ladies on staff this weekend. Um, and not this weekend, I don't try not to work on Saturdays. This week, we talked about it. But like there's literally, so like if you think about the stereotypical man, male hormone is testosterone. Well, females have uh, you know, estrogen and progesterone and radically higher levels of oxytocin, especially while carrying children and um, while, while in the nurturing aspects of that, doing that. Um, and so these, these male and female hormone things are part of it. That's part of the reason why aging is difficult. You know, as I've talked to some of my buddies, male and females, that the hormone stuff changes as you age. It's tough. You, you kind of like, it's, it's, it's a form of suffering because of the fall, right? When the hormones got out of whack, you sleeping, eating, functioning, it's just kind of difficult. And so, but the females have three hormones that are associated with the, their their sex, whereas the man has one, so it's literally more complicated. I'm not trying to be weird about this. It might, it's just literally, but when those work, you know, when the hormone levels rise, it produces ovulation, and then when the fertilized egg can implant, that's always like a hormone dance situation, and then and the oxytocin's meant to bind and connect and, and help, and so there's like this, literally this incubation, 
nurturing, caring thing that the woman's body is doing. Now, I think that because these hormones lead to development, you don't actually have to uh, be physically reproducing in order to like have your person changed by your hormones, right? Um, and it's important to understand in the New Testament especially, the command to be fruitful and multiply is broadened to include not just the physical dimension but the spiritual dimension as well. That the, the call to be fruitful and multiply exists as like discipleship is multiplication uh, is fruitfulness and evangelism is like multiplication. And so I'm the, the heroes of the faith like Paul and Jesus, you know, didn't physically reproduce, but nonetheless, they are acting out uh, the command to be fruitful and multiply. And so I don't want to infer that like infertility makes you less of a woman or less of a man or that those things, but just literally the hormones themselves create things in us that affect the way we, we relate to each other people. And so this, if the male thing is like the strength the, the female thing is like this nurturing or this care, this, this warmth. That's why when Paul and Jesus are being caring, they're describing themselves in maternal terms, right? And to some degree, this like nurture care piece coincides with some of the stereotypical feminine sins as well. Think about like gossip or bitterness, right? Like if gossip is I'm gonna care for you, but then I'm gonna use the information to spread and shame, or I'm gonna like care about stuff that's actually not my business. I'm caring horizontally. It's too much breadth of care. Under the pretense of care, I'm reading gossip magazines. And bitterness is like the refusal to care out of self-preservation, right? It's a hardening of the heart. So again, these are, I'm not saying that men don't gossip, men gossip like madhouse. You know, I'm just saying that there's, there's association with the caring and the nurturing of, of the women and how this, this plays out. Um, hormonally and things like that. Now, why talk about this? Well, I think it's important to understand that like the bodies that God gave us lead us to inhabit social settings in different ways. And men need to be aware of their predispositions and women need to be aware of their predispositions. And again, we're speaking about generalities, not universals here. But most basically what this means is that God made males and females radically the same and at the same time radically different. That God, being three in one, makes males and females and they bear his image together. That means if you only ever have friends that are all dudes or if you only have friends that are all women, you're missing out on the primary metaphor given in the New Testament for how men and women are supposed to relate together, which is that we are brothers and sisters. That we as a church, that like men and women image God together as we relate together, not just sexually, but socially. That we are the family of God as brothers and sisters to receive and connect with each other, to image God to one another, and to be children of the Father together. And this is like, leads me to this last point I want us to recognize is, is that we have to receive each other as brothers and sisters, and we have to at the same time receive God as husband. And so if we're insecure or fragile in our masculinity or in our femininity, we're gonna miss out on major metaphors that God's given us in the Old Testament. That if we overemphasize sameness, we miss a core image of the gospel, right? So uh, C.S. Lewis wrote this novel called That Hideous Strength about 70 years ago, maybe 60, I don't know exactly. But it was a long time ago. And in this story, there's these evil bad guys and the evil bad guys, what they're trying to do is to cleanse the earth 
through eliminating biological reality, eliminating male and female, and trying to put humans onto microchips so that the world can be clean from all the human yuck. He wrote that 60 years ago, and now it looks like just this prophetic wild reality. They're like, how did he know the future's coming? Well, he basically did. And so the main character in the story is talking about what the evil guys are trying to do. They're trying to eliminate and escape the male and the female in favor of this kind of non-gendered, eternal microchip consciousness thing. But he says it's not going to work because there's something before male and female that is shaping the entire cosmos. Here's what he says. He says, what is above and beyond all things is so masculine that we are all feminine in relation to it. So even before there was male and female, there was God and his creation. And what Lewis is getting at here is like the masculine energy of God precedes all things and precedes even male and female. And he's, he's plying out this, what Paul's gonna talk about in Ephesians 5, uh, 32, which is this picture of Christ in the church, that this image that we are all the bride, that we are all feminine in relation to God. The mystery is profound. I'm saying it refers to Christ in the church, the mystery of the gospel. And so if you overemphasize the sameness of male and female, you miss out on a primary arc of story throughout the whole Bible that God is pursuing a bride for himself. That we, the bride of Christ, the people who love and follow Jesus, we all act this feminine role out with regards to God. That we are pursued, that he serves, that we respond, that he initiates And if we don't get that, we'll constantly think that salvation is by works. We'll constantly be trying to earn something from God. We're constantly trying to be uh, reciprocating enough. But the reality is that God has purchased and pursued his bride that is us. And so we are secure. And so you have to at least be secure enough in your masculinity to say, I'm the bride of Christ. And if you miss that, you're gonna miss the entirety of the sweep of the scriptures. And so my hope for us as a church is, like I said, two things. One, that we would, with clear conscience and with clarity, say there are two genders, male and female, your body tells you the truth. And that we'd be confident enough in our masculinity and our femininity for you ladies to have strong arms and not be worried about it, and for you guys to act caring and maternal and not be worried about it, that that's okay but more so than even all of that, that we are pursued and loved by God perfectly and we rest as the bride with the absolutely perfect ideal husband. Let's thank the Lord. Jesus, thank you for what you've done for us. Thank you for pursuing us. Thank you that we get to be your bride. I pray that we can cling to the reality of your scriptures and that our anxious hearts would be calmed. In your name we pray. Amen.